Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I sat down with them and they would say what their life has been like and the sense of rejection that they feel and everything that they've gone through, I remember sitting there going, my goodness, me too. And then they talk about alienation and racism and discrimination and what that does to you, what that really feels like. And I remember sitting there just nodding and nodding and nodding, going, yeah, me too, me too. I completely, I, I get it. I, I completely feel like that too. But then at the end of all of that, I would always sit down and sort of think to myself, but what is it that makes him pick up a gun and I pick up a camera? Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Sean Ealing, the interviews writer at Vox, filling in for Ezra Klein. My guest today is Dia Khan, a British documentary filmmaker and human rights activist. She is the creator of two extraordinary films airing right now on Netflix, White Right, Meeting the Enemy, and Jihad, A Story of the Others. These films, and trust me when I tell you, are fantastic. They, on the surface, are about opposing brands of extremism, white supremacy and jihadism, but they're really about how similar and reciprocal these extremisms are, and they're incredibly insightful. During the course of these films, she sits down with white supremacists, she sits down with jihadists, and she tries to understand what is really motivating them. It is a genuinely revealing attempt to cut through the caricatures and the rhetoric and even the ideological trappings, and really find out what's really motivating these people to hate and kill other human beings. The results are truly astounding. I did an interview with Dia a couple of months ago for Vox.com, but I was hoping then, and I'm ecstatic now that we were able to do a podcast version, because there's just so much color, so much detail, so much wisdom in her stories, and some of that got lost in the conversation when it got distilled down to text. And so this conversation will track with a lot of what we said in the previous conversation, but we're going to dive a lot deeper and we're going to pursue some of the threads I didn't have a chance to pursue the last time we spoke. I really cannot overstate how much I've enjoyed my exchanges with Dia. She is an extraordinary human doing extraordinary work, and I hope you find her insights as compelling as I have. As always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Dia Khan. 
Dia Khan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So how you found your way to making these two documentaries is really a fascinating story. And it's one that we didn't really get into that much in our previous conversation, or we did, but it didn't make it into the text. And so I think maybe a great way to start is to just have you explain how it is that you came to make these two films. What inspired you to do this work in this way? So in terms of the the order of how I did the films, uh, the very first film uh, was, out of the two, was the, the film about jihadis. And the reason I wanted to do that film is that I wanted to, IS was, I think actually all the, the sort of media attention around IS was just starting to happen as I'd already started making the film. But but I'd been really curious personally what it is that would drive somebody who was born and raised in the West, came from a Muslim family to want to go to foreign battlefields and join these, these you know, geopolitical uh, fights. Um, because I'm, I mean, I, I come from a Muslim family as well. I was born and raised in the West. I've experienced discrimination. You know, I, I've experienced a lot of the same things that a lot of these young people who, who went have experienced. So I wanted to understand what is it that would drive them to do such a thing. And I wasn't feeling satisfied by the, the answers that I was reading about in, in the media and, 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 you know, things that I would see, see on TV just, just wasn't satisfying my curiosity. So I decided I wanted to go and just find out. But my sort of personal investment in it beyond that curiosity is that I have lived with death threats from Muslim extremists most of my life. Being a Muslim woman, doing some of the work that I do, being very outspoken and um, living the life that I've lived um, has inspired a lot of hatred and a lot of, lot of violence and also threats of violence against me and my family. So it was also a sort of personal, um, it was a personal issue for me as well, is I think I, I got to a point in my life where I was tired of of being afraid of men like that. Um, so I wanted to see if I could overcome that fear, if I could sit with them and and see if I could maybe get to their humanity and and if they could come, you know, come to see mine. Um, and I made a really conscious decision, you know, despite having very strong feelings about men like that. Uh, very negative, strong feelings about men like that. I decided I was going to put all of that stuff, all of my baggage sort of at the door. And I was going to walk into the room and be willing to listen and be willing to to understand their their point of view. Um, so that's what drove me to that. And then similarly, actually, with uh, White Right, it started with uh, with an interview that I gave to the BBC, where I basically defended diversity and multiculturalism and um one of the sentences that I said in that was that Britain's never going to be white again. And I didn't really think much of it at the time. But the response to that interview was incredible. I mean, I, I as I said, I'm used to living with death threats. It's, it's, you know, it's nothing new to me. But the intensity and the volume of the threats that I got from white supremacists and mostly white supremacists in America, apparently what happened is that uh, that interview landed on various uh, racist websites in America and campaigns were started and directed at me. And I sort of got to the same point where I, I had a choice where I could be afraid, which I've been of people like that most of my life as well. Also, you know, being a brown girl gr growing up in Norway, having gone to, you know, anti-fascist, anti-racist protests most of my life. 
Um, and also being afraid of guys like that most of my life because my family members have been beaten up and attacked by people like that. My friends have been violently attacked by by racists in the past. So I want. So I, I got to a point where I had to make an active decision. Do I continue being afraid of people like this or do I go and confront this? Do I go and actually look at this? And I decided again that I've had enough of being afraid of people like that. And I've also had enough of behaving in a way that they want me to behave, which is to be afraid. So for listeners who may not be familiar with some of the work you've done before these two films, I guess in addition to the comment you just uh, recalled about Britain no longer being white on the BBC, what other sorts of noises were you making? What other sorts of things were you saying in the public sphere in in Europe that were bringing all this sort of attention to you um, from both sides? Well, well, you know, the, the, the actual context of, of that comment in that interview, the gist of what I was actually saying, I was being interviewed because of the rise of uh, Islamophobia and racism in Europe. And my my what I was trying to say, what I said in that interview was that we're going to have to find a way to live together. We have no choice. We have now different people from different parts of the world who are, are living side by side in, in, in these various countries. And we can no longer just tolerate each other. We're going to have to build a real relationship with each other. And in order to do that, I understand that there's a sense of loss on all sides. You know, our parents that came from, you know, Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, whatever countries, for them to think that they can reestablish those societies in the West, I think is delusional. I, I think I understand why they would want to bring their past with them, but really it's 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 not practical. It's it's not going to work. And similarly, for people in, in England and in other countries to think that their countries are going to go back to what they used to be pre-immigration, that's also delusional. So really the reality is that we're going to have to figure out a way to build a society that includes all of us and a future that includes all of us where we, where we all belong, not just brown and black people, but everybody. You know, it's, it's not, you know, brown and black people at the expense of white people or vice versa. I thought that was a pretty, you know, straightforward <laughs> message. I didn't think that that was particularly controversial. But that, as I say, you know, did create a lot of problems for people. And in that message, you know, lies the 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 fact that I am also very critical of, of you know, what our um, family's generation have done to our children, you know, in terms of holding on to practices that are awful, you know, things like, you know, so-called honor killings and female genital mutilation and forced marriages and, and just not allowing their kids to live fully and freely in the way that they can and want to. So, you know, I, I've often spoken about this compression that a lot of young people who grow up between cultures like I did um, find themselves not good enough for their own families and their own communities or their families' communities, where they're not Pakistani enough, they're not Muslim enough, they're not whatever enough. And then similarly, um, finding themselves rejected by the countries that they're growing up in because they're not British enough, they're not white enough, they're not whatever enough. And then, you know, interestingly, you have these various extremist movements that show up. For example, IS was really, really clever about this. They said, we accept you. You have a place with us. For us, it doesn't matter. You can be white, brown, black, male, female, doesn't matter. As long as you're a Muslim, we accept you. So for people who feel rejected constantly 
and can never satisfy the expectations that the, their country or that their families and communities set for them, finally find um, someone willing to embrace them. And that's what, you know, a lot of these recruiters of these movements very cynically, very brilliantly and actively did. Yeah, we're going to come back to that in just a minute because I, I think the, the insights you gleaned on that sort of personal psychological level are really sort of the great gift of the way you did these films, sitting down with people and actually understanding what's making them tick. But first, I, you know, I want to ask, there are a lot of different ways to study extremism. Most of them are probably safer and easier <laughs> than what you've done here. So why is it that you decided the way to do this was to seek out, you know, the most extremist characters you could find uh, and put yourself in many instances in, in harm's way to sit down with them face to face in their domain and, and sort of hash it out? Why did you feel like that was the only way to do this or the best way to do this? Well, because I, I am sort of uh, just an obsessively curious person in general. And I'm really, really, really interested in people. And I'm not just interested in what people do, but I'm interested in why people do the things that they do. And the reason I wanted to go and sit face to face and do this directly is because I don't appreciate filters. I don't appreciate distance. I, I don't, because that, that makes it difficult for me to understand. I don't want to go through somebody else's interpretation of what this guy is like. I don't want somebody telling me who you are. I would much rather sit here and get to speak to you myself and, and form my own feelings and opinions and thoughts about it. So, so uh, I, I do appreciate that there are a lot of, you know, terrorism and extremism analysts and people like that who, who you know, will study various phenomenons from a distance. And, and I'm sure that that's the, the, there's value in that. But for me personally, the way I work in my brain and my heart works, I have to I have to be able to feel and be in the presence of in order to to learn, because this was, you know, an exercise of me trying to learn. I mean, this was a very selfish thing. You know, it, it's turned out to be a film that other people experience. But this was mostly just my own sort of insanity and, and drive to to want to learn and understand these people. So, yeah, I, I guess the answer to your question is I didn't want um, I didn't want any filters. I, d I don't want to be told what to think about these people. I'll, I'll figure it out myself. So I, in order to figure it out myself, I have to go sit with them. So you sat down with <laughs> these people, right? You sat down with, with skinheads and neo-Nazis. You sat down with jihadists and former jihadists. Mm. You befriended them. You, you got to know them. You, you broke bread with them. You marched with them in some cases. What is motivating them? You know, where... Is all this hate coming from? Well, I think this is something that I found with both the jihadis and, and the white supremacists, is that hate is a really convenient cover for a sense of loss and a sense of alienation. Um, anger and rage and violence are perfect covers for feelings of vulnerability or, or feeling like you're not good enough, feeling like you are less than. So what I, I find really interesting is that what seems to drive these men, as much as we would all like to think that it is the politics and it is the ideology, I think, of course, that is a part of the, the picture. But I think the, the reasons why they are drawn to these types of ideologies is emotional and human needs that are not being met. 
in 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 their lives, in their day-to-day lives, and and the kind of human needs that I think these types of movements, extremist movements, satisfy for people are a sense of belonging, are a sense of purpose, are a sense of brotherhood and community, and feeling like you matter, feeling like you have something that you can contribute towards, feeling powerful instead of powerless, feeling like you have a voice, feeling like you're significant, and you know all of these needs are something that we all look for you know it's it this is not you know specific to extremists this is all of us i think and and we all satisfy these needs in in whatever ways that we do and and these men or men in you know mostly men this is these are the movements that they're finding where they can satisfy that and and i will also i will go back to the recruiters again i think the recruiters on both sides of these movements are very clever and very cynically and intentionally targeting people who might be somewhat either broken or who are in a transitional period of their life where they're feeling more lost than maybe they would otherwise um and they very cynically prey on that so they take all of your feelings of insecurity and vulnerability and 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 all these things that you're looking for and channel it towards these ideologies give you black and white answers give you certainty instead of the insecurity that you feel and the fear that you feel about the world around you that's changing really quickly and you just can't get a foothold you 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 don't understand how you fit in So that's sort of the biggest lesson that I've learned is that this actually boils down to very very basic human needs which also is a is a tremendous source of hope in a way in my eyes because that means that these are the types of needs that I think as a society we can potentially do something about. Yeah, you know this is so interesting to me because what you're really talking about is a, a kind of failure of community. Yeah. So in a lot of these sort of debates that people have about what's motivating extremist of of any kind is you know is it identity is it politics is it economics is it ideology you name it and what people often miss is that you can be at least according to a lot of sort of conventional metrics be reasonably well off you can have a, a, a decent job a stable income and all the rest of it but you can still feel a kind of emptiness yes. and, and inertia in your own life a, a lack of meaning call it whatever you want yeah. um and if you're in that place the appeal of these these movements um these struggles whatever you want to call it is enormously powerful and it's very easy to see how people can get sucked into that and this is something i think you explore really well in both films i think you're absolutely right because a lot of people you know said to me that well you know it's not because i think people are constantly looking for one answer and there is no one answer you know people people do the things that they do in life for for different reasons and for a mixture of different reasons and those reasons often evolve and and shift just from day to day even but you know uh, economic marginalization and deprivation is a factor or but it is one of the factors but a lot of people will say well you know look at these guys who went and joined IS you know some of them were educated and they were doctors and they were this and they were that so obviously there you know there's no economic deprivation there but what people don't realize is that its deprivation is not just about economics it's also about like you're saying a, a kind of a spiritual emotional and inner deprivation you know when you feel lost when you feel like your your life and your 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 world around you is just crumbling down on you if somebody offers you acceptance somebody offers you understanding somebody offers you a place 
and a community and 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 some something a goal that you can pour all of those feelings um, towards. That's as you say, it's incredibly powerful and intoxicating and incredibly. It's a very appealing invitation because I, I, you know, when I sat down with the the jihadis, I found myself uh, to my horror actually, you know, because uh, as I said. I, I mean, I hated these guys. I have hated guys like this most of my life. I've been afraid of them like nothing else. I mean, they, they have been the source of destroying my life in so many ways for so many years. But so, so when I sat down with them and they would say what their life has been like and, and, and the sense of rejection that they feel and everything that they've gone through, I remember sitting there going, my goodness, me too. And then they talk about you know, alienation and racism and discrimination and what that does to you, what that really feels like. And I remember sitting there just nodding and nodding and nodding, going, yeah, me too, me too. I completely, I, I get it. I, I completely feel like that too. But then at the end of all of that, I would always sit down and sort of think to myself, but what is it that makes him pick up a gun and I pick up a camera? And the answer to that question is when you are lost, or when you are in that dark place or that insecure place or that fearful place in your life, it really matters who shows up at that point in your life. So if the person that shows up is somebody loving and caring, somebody who wants the best for you, or you know somebody who's, who's a teacher or a mentor or, or, or a loved one, or it is somebody who uh, is looking for another recruit, what you end up doing with those feelings is two very, very different trajectories, you know, but the starting point is, you know, remarkably similar. Yeah, you know, it, it was weird watching your films that at many times I felt compassion yeah. for some of these people, which was very strange. It's disturbing. But it's, yeah. if you just pause for a second and reflect on the extent to which human beings are conditioned creatures and how we are shaped by all these forces in our life over which we have very little control. And how easily, if I was born in another place, at another time, under very different circumstances, this could have been me. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it's, that is so often lost. We get these sort of caricature, two-dimensional explanations of very difficult, complex problems, because it's easier to put in a box and explain that way. But it doesn't even come close to getting at the reality of what's happening and it, why. It doesn't. And also what's, what's interesting about that is that that's exactly what extremists do too. And so that's what I don't appreciate about our, you know, quote unquote, our, our response to extremists is because we're sort of reducing them down, like you're saying, down to caricatures in the same way that they're doing to the rest of us. Just simplifying things and wanting to operate out of a place of self-righteousness and just wanting to condemn people and just wanting to blame somebody else for my own problems. That's exactly what extremists do. The key term is what you said, which is self-reflection. I think that's something that extremists don't allow any space for. And I think the rest of us who are trying to work towards changing that, we also have to ensure that self-reflection is something that remains on the table for us as well. That is something that we exercise and that we don't forget that these are human beings. In a way, they sort of want us to forget that. They want us in a way to dehumanize them because it makes it easier for them to dehumanize us in return. And, and, and I think it's really important not to walk into that sort of trap. And it's important that we don't become what it is that we're fighting against. Yeah, that, that trap, the victimhood mm. dynamic that you, you talk about is really, really tricky. 
and this came up in the last time we spoke, right? There is clearly social utility in stigmatizing extremists. They're dangerous and they're in many ways a cancer on our body politic. Uh, but if you go too far in that or if you don't take the time and do the work of, of really trying to understand w what's happening, you reinforce the narrative that they're telling themselves and at the same time you increase this sort of allure or the transgressive appeal of being part of this kind of revolutionary, you know, grand metaphysical struggle and navigating that tension is really, really difficult. Yeah. Almost impossible. Well, I think just being aware of that, I think, is really important. Uh, and I think it, it's really important to keep remembering that that the entire foundation for for movements like this is, as you say, it's it's um, it's built upon victimhood, a sense of victimhood, and a sense of the other. So my failures, my my sense of victimhood and grievances, and and whatever problems I have in my life is somebody else's fault. And I think by not engaging with racists or extremists on on one level. And, and not just not engaging with them, but when we engage with them, engaging in a certain way, I think can very quickly play into, their, as you say, their story and, and how uh, they view themselves and how they view the rest of the world um, in relation to them. And it was part of the reason I didn't want to go in uh, with either side, actually, having arguments about uh, race, or having arguments about, you know, Hitler or religion or this group, you know, verse versus that verse or anything like that. Because the, that layer of the conversation and, and engagement, that's actually what they want. They want us to get into an ideological argument with each other. And what happens, the problem I have with that is what happens in a conversation like that is that you're talking past each other. So it's my facts versus your facts, my, my view of the world versus yours. They are so practiced, all of them across both movements. They're so practiced on their talking points. They're so practiced on that way of engaging, which is why when I went in there and I didn't ask them any of that stuff and I asked them more questions just about them, most of them found that really confusing. And they found it really strange because nobody's, I mean, and they said it to my face several times, nobody's spoken, me, spoken to me in the way that you're speaking to me. And, and, and it's like they're looking for trouble. They're, they're like, keep looking at me going, you know, when are you going to yell at me? When are you going to, you know, fight? Because that I know and that, that I like and that gets me what I want, you know, because the result of, of that kind of engagement is... You know, I could, you know, defeat them, quote unquote, in an argument like that, for example. They walk away as the victim and as, you know, the media and this filmmaker and this whatever, you know, didn't listen to them and just censored them and whatever. Right. So they still they walk away as kind of the, the winner in the eyes of their followers and, and their group or. They, you know, out argue me or something, and then they they're still victorious. So, so in in a way, that's a that's a that's a win win for them, no matter the outcome. And I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in having a conversation where they lay the table of of how this is going to be. I wanted to get closer to their heart and closer to the truth of who they are. All this stuff, all these arguments, is just sort of superficial uh, blah. 
that 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 is is this window dressing that they use to impress their own friends and keep themselves occupied and and use to scare the rest of us with but it's it doesn't actually mean anything and it doesn't actually say anything um so how to engage with people like this was really really important and and a very conscious effort on my part uh to not fall into the trap of of just just you know sitting there biting each other and and just being pissy to each other. Yeah, I mean that was more It's tempting. Yeah, no, well it's <laughs> I have to say. It's easy. Yeah. Also, and that was really one of them But they want that, so you can't do that. Oh, they do. And part of what made the experience of watching your films as a viewer so instructive is that when you're sitting down in front of these people, the white supremacist and jihadist and you're engaging them on human terms the way you are they don't know what to do with that yeah. because as much as they reduce the world to a kind of abstraction that fits into the story that they're telling and of which they're a protagonist uh, most of the people who interact with them reduce them to an abstraction in the same way. Exactly. And as you point out, exactly. they're comfortable exactly. in that but when you cut through all that bullshit and look right at them and ask them questions that they're not used to being asked and you're not there to judge. They don't know what to do. And you could – their whole veneer in many cases, you can see it melting away. It's almost like their their brain is short-circuiting. They don't – it's just not computing because yeah. it's not what they're programmed to do or to notice. Yeah. And it was it was really something to to behold. It was, it was really interesting for me to see as well because I, I, I really sincerely – I, I really mean this with all my heart. I sincerely want to understand them. And I sincerely wanted to listen. I really, really did to both of them, despite my strong feelings and disagreements with their politics and, and, and what they stand for. But I really, really deeply wanted to understand them. Um, and I think uh, when you are sincere and genuine, the other person also f feels that, even if they despise you and, and sort of think that they should dislike you they they that sincerity i think does come come through um and one of the guys because i asked him recently again you know why he decided to you know continue filming and why 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 they let me continue spending time with them and he said well you know some people have you know in hindsight you know said to me that i shouldn't have been in the film um but he said i always answer by saying that i did it because you're sincere and you actually and and to my face actually some of them also said you stand for something, and we respect that. We don't like what you stand for, but you actually believe in something, and that we respect. Which also I thought was interesting, that it's almost as if we're meeting kind of activist to activist in a way, in their eyes. Um, it, it was, you know, and I have to say, I didn't expect uh, to like any of them. <laughs> And I, uh, my intention was never to like them or for them to like me, quite honestly, at all. Uh, so when things like that start, when that started happening, that really shook me, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I still find it sort of bizarre to talk about. A lot of dicey moments mm. in the making of these films and the filming of these films. Uh, one in particular was extremely um, unnerving, and, and and I wonder if you could just kind of tell me about this, what I assume was probably the scariest moment for you in the making of these films, where you ended up sort of off the beaten road um, in a, a kind of compound with a bunch of white supremacists, and things got extremely um, uncomfortable. Could you just maybe explain what happened? 
Uh, yeah, it was it was it was very difficult. I think uh, by this point, I had uh, spent a lot of time with a lot of these guys, um, and some of them were saying, "Oh, it's perfectly safe. You know, you can come to this compound. It's, it'll be fine. You can bring your camera. It's it's all." Was, this, be. was this after Charlottesville? <clears throat> this was right after Charlottesville. Okay, right. So this was going to be like you know them sort of celebrating that this was a really successful uh, uh, rally and all of this kind of stuff, uh, and it was just me and and my colleague because I mean it's always just two of us that work. I don't work with like big crews or security or anything like that. And, uh, you know, we walk down this uh, dirt road in the middle of nowhere in the in the mountains in Virginia. Yes. And guys start gathering uh, at the at the end of the 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 path and they start shouting and they start cursing and they start pointing. And, and, and I see many of them are holding um, glasses of uh, sorry, bottles of beer. Uh, and all various kinds of guns. I mean, stuff. I mean, I, I don't really know much about guns coming from the UK, but like things I've, I, I would imagine I've seen, like people see on battlefields. And they just continue screaming. And I walk down, and they're like, you know, put your hands up. You put your fucking hands up. You know, who the fuck are you? What? Are th- just constant shouting. And so I walk down, my hands up, and I and I don't have a camera. Thankfully, my colleague said, don't take the camera yet. We can come back and get it. Uh, and I had my phone in my hand. And then I get down there and they separate me from my colleague and then they're shouting at him and asking him all kinds of questions. And then they just lay into me, you know, who the fuck are you? What kind of a fucking Muslim are you? What's this? What's that? Blah, blah. And are you recording us? Are you this? Are you that? And I was going, no. And then one guy comes up to me and they are waving their guns at me. Uh, and some of them had their shirts off and they had bruises on their arms. So these were some of the guys that had been fighting uh, a bit earlier in, in uh, at the rally. And uh, one guy smoking cigarettes uh, and he's holding a gun and he walks straight up into my face, like uh, closer than this microphone is to my face right now. Uh, I mean, his nose almost touching mine and he blows smoke in my face. And he says, are you fucking pregnant? Because I I was now, mind you, so I'm doing the film. I was pregnant. uh, And uh, you'll see I'm always wearing like big baggy shirts and then another long um, sort of sweater and then also a scarf to kind of hide any bump or anything like that. So I was always really kind of careful not to show them that I'm pregnant. And he goes, you know, are you fucking pregnant? And I just looking, remember looking him dead in the eyes and just and I'm sort of panicking and going, I just have to breathe slowly. You just breathe slowly. And I stared him straight back and I said, no, I am not. And the reason it was such a such a scary moment for me um, is because all through the making of this film, whether it was the suit and tie racists or the boots on the ground Nazis, one thing, because they all have their differences, mind you, within this movement, but the one thing that they were all united on is that people like me should not get to have children. Because again, going back to this demographic shift, they don't want uh, me to have children because then that means, you know, there's one more of me and whatever, less of them. And also uh, any kind of, you know, uh, mixed race children or anything like that, you know, that's just uh, people like me. I mean, one of the guys I remember telling me that people like women like me should be sterilized, uh, forcibly sterilized. And so when he when he's looking at me and they're carrying these guns and I remember looking at my phone uh, and I saw see no signal. And I remember thinking at that point, I hadn't let any of my colleagues back in England know that I was here haven't let my family know, nothing. And I remember thinking, if they put a bullet in my head or in my stomach now and just put me in the ground, nobody's going to find me. Nobody's going to, because nobody even knows that I'm here. It was, it was 
horrifying. Uh, I mean, I'm not very easily scared anyway, but that really, really shook me. Um, the amount of guns and weapons that these people have is frightening. And the fact that they are preparing for violence, actively preparing for violence, scares me. So despite everything that we've said, I want to be very clear that we have to take the danger that this movement poses very, very serious and the potential for violence, which we've already seen examples of, and they are planning on uh, ramping up, actually. Uh, we need to take that very seriously. But honestly, I didn't think I was going to make it out alive at that point. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to ask you about one of the leaders you spoke with, Jeff, I believe. And like many of these people, they, they have these very cartoonish ideas of you know, black people and brown people or any non-white people, yeah. basically. And it's very easy to hate people when they're abstract in that way. But on the individual level, they, they, he could not bring himself to dislike you personally, individually. And what's really brilliant about that is it's a kind of like inception move, right? Because if he finds himself liking you, befriending you, it's very difficult to square that with the story he's been telling himself about how evil and despicable and threatening you really are. And you, yeah. you, again, you see this transformation happening in real time, and it's almost like a kind of cognitive dissonance sets in, and you're just there hanging out, you know. And it's they don't, they just don't know. He doesn't know what to say, and he just sort of stumbles over his words. And I don't, I'm not saying that to sort of pile on. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a genuine. I think, moment of, of awareness. Now, even if he buries that away and does yeah. nothing with it, somewhere in his brain, yeah. some story he was telling himself fell apart. Yeah. What Now, what becomes of that? I don't know. Who but, knows? Yeah. But you could see it happening in real yeah. time, and that's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is, is uh, in the course of making both films, and in particular making the jihadi film, uh, I remember, you know, I would just constantly keep asking people, you know, what makes people change? Because I spoke to a lot of former jihadis. 
And I kept going, you know, what is the point of the the, the shift? How do you go from feeling so intensely, strongly about uh, the world and then that completely shifting? And one of the the most consistent answers that everybody would give me, including people who had studied people like this for a really long time, they would say that it's what apparently tends to interrupt their way of thinking is somebody from the outgroup or the other, the the, the enemy, basically, somebody from that uh, side behaving in a way that they don't expect and behaving and, and so in particular behaving in a kind or friendly or humane way. And that that's not what ends up flipping people instantly. But apparently, for the people who have had a change of heart, that they can all trace it back to that those experiences with the other, um, creating a crack in their very, very permanent, very, very absolute view of the world. And then that crack gets, you know, bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. Uh, and then for some, you know, the whole ideology falls apart uh, eventually. But I just think that that's quite interesting. Um, and, and, and so I had heard that from all of the, the jihadis and, and all the, the jihadism experts as well, people who, who, who work on de-radicalizing uh, young people. And then so to be sitting with the white supremacists and to start seeing some of it, like just happening in front of my eyes and then Brian subsequently actually leaving the movement was just... It was so surreal. I mean, it still is surreal. You know, it's hard for me sometimes to compute myself, to to think that somebody can be so full of these feelings and then walk away from it. You know, to have been so loyal to a cause for such a long time and so dedicated, you know, and and the fact that the, the minute you have some human connection, that starts falling apart. Now, having said that, obviously, that's not true for everybody. You know, it, it, it's I met plenty of people, you know, like I said to you in the in the article that you did as well, you know, where I, I was absolutely in, in fear for my life. And, and you know, I also uh, in the film include the story of um, the really awful shooting that took place in Oak Creek. So, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusion that this movement is um, how dangerous it is. But, you know, the, what I didn't expect, I suppose, is that on an individual level, there is this tremendous potential for change, which means there is a chance for us to actually get through to people, you know. So it, it might not feel, so for me at least, it doesn't feel as impossible as it used to when I first started making the films. I started making the films from a very sort of pessimistic point of view myself. But I've left both films feeling much more hopeful, much, much more hopeful about the, the possibility of change and, and the possibility of us as a society engaging uh, with these uh, issues in a way where we might actually see lasting and more sustainable shifts. Well, you mentioned Brian, and I would love if you could just, for people who haven't yet mm. seen the film... Just giving away the just, whole film. Just, <laughs> you must still just watch it. Just ruining it, it yes. <laughs> Believe me, you must watch it. But if you could just say kind of briefly, like, what happened with him? Uh, like, what was the arc that occurred from the moment you met to where we are now, where he ended up, as you said, basically walking away from from yeah. the life? Yeah. So so, so Brian Culpepper is his name. He was the, the PR director for the National Socialist Movement, which is like the, the biggest and oldest neo-Nazi organization in America. My previous job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, he was 
utterly dedica- dedicated to the cause of white nationalism is is what he calls it. You know, he he believes in in an imminent uh, race war that's going to take place. He believes that uh, when that time comes, brown and black people need to be deported or need to be contained within, you know, just what, one part of America. Because what they're all afraid of is the demographic shifts that are happening in America. And, and similarly, people are afraid of this in, in Europe as well, that, you know, within the next 20, 30 years, America will no longer be majority white. So they want to reverse that or they want to slow that down at the very, very least. And that's sort of what's instigated this this recent resurgence of this movement with Obama sort of representing that really big shift for people. That that, that power is switching is what they feel from white people to people of color. So Brian, very, very committed to the cause and was in the NSM, I think, for about 11 years, I think. And I met him just before Charlottesville, just before the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville. Um, and they were, you know, changing their uh, uh, shields, uh, which used to have swastikas on them. And they were putting on a different symbol on them because they're trying to look a little bit more palatable and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up spending a lot of time with Brian. And we got along. We actually got along really, really well. And then we had several sort of intense arguments as well, uh, because he kept talking about violence against women when it comes to, you know, immigrant and minority communities. And I kept talking to him about, you know, what about white women? You know, white women is not as if they're not getting beaten and not dying, you know, but you seem to just happily ignore that. But anyway, so we had lots of these bizarre arguments. And then one of the conversations, and this took place actually on camera, he was talking about deportation. And how deportation will have to be part of the solution of, you know, when the white ethno state happens, that's going to happen. And I was looking at him and I said, well, you know, and so what about me? Because he kept saying, eventually, he kept saying that he considers me to be a friend. And I was going, okay, well, that's nice. And so when this white ethno state happens and the deportations begin, what will happen to me? Are you going to hide me? Are you going to protect me? Are you? What are you going to do? Are you going to ship me off? Uh, and he couldn't answer. He couldn't answer. And I kept pushing him on it. And then eventually he just said... I would have to do what I had to do. So basically, I would have to go, right? So he would have to get rid of me. And that uh, really bothered him to have to answer that. And he really struggled to give me that answer, but that was his answer. And then, I, fine, we, we, you know, we sort of went our separate ways. And then I started editing the film. I went back to England. I was almost done with the film. And then I get an email from Brian saying, I need to tell you something. I said, okay. And he said, you know, can we Skype and whatever? And I said, okay, that's fine. And he says, I'm leaving. I've had enough. And I, and, and, and I was just sort of horrified and confused going, what do you mean you're done? You're one of the most committed people that I met. And he said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. And, uh, you know, and, and, and part of the reason, not the entire reason, but part of the reason, he said, is because we've become friends. And he, and he could not reconcile that because we've become friends and he holds to this worldview that he holds, that means he would have to deport me. That means he would have to hurt me and people like me. And that he realized he wouldn't be able to do. So then he feels he, he cannot be a part of a movement who would be subjecting people to that. So it's just, I mean, I was so touched and, and confused and lost for words when he said that. You know, who would have thought? <laughs> and, and he, something I found myself thinking about a lot when I was watching is how many people come to that realization but still can't muster the will to walk away in part, 
not necessarily because they still believe whatever they pretend to believe, but because they're so embedded in this community. It's become so essential to their whole way of life. Everyone they know, all of their relationships, their whole way of being is tied up with this project. And to walk away from the racism and extremism is to quite literally walk away from their entire life as it's been constructed. That's not an easy thing to do. And also, um, where do you go? Where do you go? You know, I and mean, I, I, I remember when I was researching, uh, I think, jihad, uh, I spoke to um, a, a former IRA terrorist. Uh, he was a bomber who'd served a, a, a long sentence and all of that. Anyway, so I spoke to him and, and he, he made this point as well. He said, look, once you become entrenched in these groups and in these movements, he said, many, many people who join these groups quite quickly after they join realized that they made a mistake or that it wasn't what they thought it was, you know, that the, the propaganda doesn't live up to the reality or the other way around. Um, you know, and, and at that point, what do you do? You know, he was saying, I had nowhere to go. You know, nobody would reach out a hand to me and say, this is the way out. He said, so you actually end up dedicating yourself to a cause for much longer than you actually want to, because as you say, you know, most extremist groups, they uh, very actively cut you off from your social network. They, they very yeah. actively cut you off from your family, from your friends, from, you know, people you grew up with. Just so, I mean, it's, 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 it's very much like cults in that sense. Or gangs, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, so your entire community and your entire uh, network becomes uh, people within these movements. And so to leave, as you say, you know, you're leaving, you're not just leaving an ideology and a way of life, you're leaving your entire friendship uh, network, your your girlfriend, probably, your, you know, everybody. And so what do you do? And then you look outside and then you have nothing but people condemning you, nothing but people saying that you're just a disgrace and you're a monster and you're awful and, and, and you know, we should just punch you. Which, mind you, I understand all of those sentiments and I understand where it comes from. But when you're in that position, what do you do? And, and you know, when I spoke to uh, some of the former neo-Nazis, they said that as well, that their exit from this movement took a lot longer than it needed to take because they couldn't see a way out. Um, so, again, I think in terms of looking at solutions for, for uh, some of these problems, I think that's something that we need to look at very, very uh, clearly. Um, but And we're seeing now in England, I mean, you're seeing uh, people who went to join IS having their, you know, citizenships revoked or put into question, even though they're British citizens. So again, you know, if somebody wants to leave and get out and think and understand that they've made a mistake, what do we do? What do they do? Right. And as someone looking at this from the perspective or with the question, well, how can we build a world that has fewer racist and fewer extremists and fewer terrorists in it? Yes. And we've got this whole vulnerable population that is embedded in these communities that um, in many ways are still sort of aping their way through it in terms of like aping the beliefs and the slogans and all that. But they're they're disbelievers at this point. Yeah. And if the circumstances were right and they saw an exit uh, that was viable, they would take it. And so the question is, how do we create those exits? How do we, how do we facilitate um, or how do we, how do we reach that population who's looking for a way out, can't see one and pull them out, give them a way to do it without 
shaming them. Humiliating, exactly. Or humiliating yeah. them unnecessarily, even though, like you said, I understand the impulse to do that. Yeah. But as a purely pragmatic question, do you do you want to win arguments? Do you want to make people feel like shit? Or do you want fewer racists in the world? Exactly. And so how do we do that? How do we how do we lift those people out? I, I think, you know, from, for, you know, my experience with both films, uh, I mean, I did get to film with people who are former neo-Nazis. Uh, or, and you know, not just neo-Nazis, but other other you know forms of white supremacists as well. Similarly, former jihadis. So those people that the former community exists, you know, there are people who have already left and who've also had time to reflect on why they joined and how hard it was to leave. And then also the challenges of rebuilding your life once you have left. So I think one of the things that we need to do is that we need to uh, utilize those experiences and those people and, and, and put them at the forefront of a lot of these conversations as much as we possibly can so that younger people, or not just younger people, but people, you know, caught up in these movements can see there is actually a way out. That's why I always include former extremists in my films so that people can see not just what the problems are, but that there is a way out. And here are people who've also managed to rebuild their life. You know, some of the people who leave, I mean, they, they don't just lose their friends and their communities, but it's also hugely dangerous for many of these guys to leave. I mean, these are very, very violent groups. And if you are seen to be a traitor and somebody who's betrayed both of the cause and the brotherhood, then, you know, violence is perfectly legitimate against you. So, you know, so these guys are taking on, uh, it's, it's, it's a really big challenge for them and a big sacrifice for them to walk out of this. So I think to do that safely, um, the, our, our best allies in a way are the, the, the former extremists. And then for us as a society to create structures that then provides alternatives, just as we do with, you know, well, you don't in America very much. But in uh, in Norway, for example, when it comes to, you know, reforming criminals, right, and people who have served prison sentences, you know, there there is treatment involved, there is mental health support involved, there is, you know, retraining for, for you know, making you a productive citizen in terms of job and mentorship and education. I mean, in many ways... The underlying reasons why people become extremists are not that different from, uh, you know, people who are who who become drawn into alcoholism or, or or gang violence or criminality of other forms. So to to support people rebuild their lives post extremism, I think requires some of those same um, sort of societal responses to be accessible to them as well. Um, and with the jihadis, we see that in, in very small numbers, but but very, very effective numbers, where uh, guys who have even been to Syria are now working with ex-extremists who are mentoring them, who are supporting them, um, and who are helping them with education and training and, and, and all of this so that they can re-enter society and be productive. It's been a few months since I, I watched the film, so I may be misremembering this, but it seemed like on the jihadist side, most of the people you spoke to were former. Yeah. Um, were there any Bryans on on that side? Did you did you encounter any people who were still involved in jihadist movements who, over the course of your relationship with them, or, or over the course of making these films and since, found their way out? No. Uh, I, I, I spent most of my time with people who had already left, uh, and then I spent time with people who were who were active. Um, or who had been active and were in the process of leaving. But my encounters with them were not at all part of the, the reason why any of them left or would consider leaving. That would probably be more effective if they came across you. Does that make sense? 
I'd love for you to explain what you mean by that. So if a young uh, Muslim guy who, who has gone to Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan to basically fight on the side of, you know, quote unquote, the oppressed Muslims and, and against the oppressors, which is Western countries. So British people, Amer- you know, American, well, not people, but armies. You stand a better chance of eventually turning someone's heart than I do in some ways in that context, because you are the enemy. Right. You you are a representation of what he thinks is oppressing him or what he thinks he is fighting against. So I think in their context, um, well, having said that, I mean, I do actually do a lot of work with um, with Muslim women uh, who work within these various communities, you know, inside Syria, inside Iraq, inside Afghanistan, who are actually very, very successful at de-radicalizing the boys that are going and joining the various extremist groups. So I suppose that could be, yeah, I mean, I guess that's not out of the question, but I think a real change of heart um, often happens when it is somebody from the other side, quote unquote, that they manage to form human connections with beyond the 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 propaganda and and the the kind of hardened view that they have of the other the kind of dehumanized view that they have of the other does that make sense it does i mean i wonder if we we're just talking a minute ago about all these different forces that make it very difficult for people mm-hmm. to get out do you find that the the structures and the forces cultural and otherwise on the jihadist side that make it difficult to leave? Do you find that those forces are, are, are stronger uh, or are they relatively comparable to what you found on the white supremacist side in terms of why, in terms of all the things that are that are militating against walking away? On the jihadi side, I think the factors are all of the same factors that you see on the white supremacist side also exist on that side. So, so you know, you're, you're, you're leaving the brotherhood, you're, you're leaving your, your very close emotional connections at that point. But I think the added dynamic, I think, on the jihadi side is because that has become a global problem. That means the way that the countries are responding to those guys is much, much harsher. I mean, you're struggling in America to call these guys white supremacist terrorists, right? So so they're, they're not even being treated in that way in terms of your court systems, let alone, you know. Um, so, so I think there is that added uh, uh, compression and, and, and danger and difficulty on the jihadi side. I mean, just like we're seeing in England now and, or, or across Europe where the countries that they came from, the foreign fighters at the very least, the countries that they came from, um, don't want to take them back. You know, so, so they have that as well, uh, which the white supremacists, you know, obviously don't have that. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the narrative that the jihadists are telling themselves I think has more plausibility than the narrative that the white supremacists are telling themselves here. I mean, they are engaged in actual wars. There is a battle going on yeah. globally, and the stakes are much higher. Yeah. Well, it's active Every, right now, whereas, yeah, whereas the white yeah. supremacists, they're talking about an upcoming war. Yeah. I mean, at this point, they still consider it to be a war, but right now it's an information war, it's a propaganda war, it's not a physical yeah. there's, war. There's, a, there's an urgency yeah. that's not quite there yeah. on that side, where yeah. they really are still sort of the delusions of grandeur, I think, are a bit more of a stretch. Different, yeah, uh, and, and, on that side. And on the jihadi side, I mean, one of the things I will say, what I find really disappointing, in terms of the 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 kind of global um, reaction to these fighters now, is that every single thing 
that was part of why they left in the first place of, you know, feeling like they're never going to be British, they're never going to be accepted, they're never going to be truly a part of that society. We're just confirming that for them. We're not interrupting that story. We're not interrupting that that sense of, you know, victimhood or a sense of whatever it is. We're utterly confirming it by saying, in fact, we know you were born and raised in England, but we want your passport back. We want your citizenship back. Why? Because you're not quite one of us, are you? If it was a white person that went, if it was a white British convert, for example, that would have gone to to Syria, you're going to strip them of their citizenship? Where are you going to send them? So the fact that, you know, they're stripping these kids of their citizenship and sending them back to their parents or their grandparents' uh, ancestral homelands completely 100% reinforces the worldview that they had when they first left, which is, I am not a part of you. You will never accept me as your child, as, as a child of this country. I will always be the other to you. That's how we're treating them. And I think that's a disgrace. And how do you manage this tension between recognizing what is a very clear and present danger and at the same time not playing into this rhetorical trap where you create a self-fulfilling prophecy i mean it's 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 why the law exists i mean bring them back and bring them to justice you know no one's saying that they should come back and go go eat ice cream I mean, just, you know, put them on trial. And of course, there should be consequences. I don't think that you you go and do something like that. And also, we have no idea what these kids have seen or what they've participated in in terms of violence. So I think there absolutely have to be some sort of consequences for that. Um, but I think to to cut them off and say that somehow, you know, a, a kid that was born in East London is the responsibility of Bangladesh I mean, it doesn't make any sense, you know, so put them on trial and bring them to justice, you know, give them, you have to keep them, hold them responsible for what they've done. And then you also have to leave room for people to reform and change and evolve and, and hopefully become productive citizens at some point. And if not, if they still remain a danger, then you treat them accordingly. But you don't just uh, throw away your responsibility. And also, I mean, we can't. I mean, as much as I'm taught, I mean, my focus, as you know, is very much looking at the emotional and the, the, the social and human and psychological aspects of, of what draws people into these movements. But that's not to say that there aren't historical factors, there aren't socioeconomic factors, and that there aren't political factors involved in all of this. And we can't, you know, in the jihadi side of it, we cannot ignore the fact that the foreign policy of, of our countries in the West have been uh, problematic and some of these kids went there it, sort of in an idealistical sense as well. They saw uh, Muslims being destroyed in various ways, and they wanted to go and see if they could help. So some of them, it was out of a noble feeling and a noble spirit. It's another thing that it's it's completely misguided and kind of, you know, doesn't actually make any sense. But, but you know, it's – but there is truth to to some of what they were seeing and what they were trying to help with. It's another thing that, you know, IS and all these groups then takes all of those feelings and puts it into their own power struggles. So I think, you know, how do we deal with both sides? I think, and, you know, we talked about this in, in, in when we spoke last time as well, you know, I, I don't believe 
that it is the responsibility when it comes to the white supremacists. I don't believe it's the responsibility of people of color or people who are abused or oppressed or discriminated against to have to reform white supremacists. I, I don't believe that for one second. And I also don't think that uh, there isn't a place for anger and, you know, people who who want to sort of retaliate against aggression with more aggression. I, I can understand all of that. I just personally don't believe in it, which is why I've chosen to engage in the way that I have. I've done all those things. Like I said to you before, you know, I, I have shouted them down. I have thrown stuff at them. I have flipped them off. I've done all of that stuff and protested against them more than a hundred times. And none of that, for me personally anyway, uh, accomplished anything. Uh, I think I have accomplished far more sitting down with them than I ever did shouting at them. So, But there is a place for shouting at people. There, there, there is a place for all of that, and I get it. Um, but I just think that we need to keep dialogue as one of the options of how we address extremism on the table. I think it just has to be one tool in our way of, of addressing this. Not the only, but 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 one way. Yeah, and going back to what you were just saying a second ago, I mean, part of what is so depressing, and this applies more to the, the sort of terrorism problem than anything else, is we're doing two wrong things at the same time, which are mutually reinforcing, right? So on the one hand, we are at a political level making decisions that are exasperating yeah. this problem, creating actual problems in the real world that is creating more terrorism. Yeah. And at the same time, we're doing very, very little or certainly not enough to create a path out yeah. for these people. Yeah. And that is just a just a perpetual motion machine yeah. of, of extremism. And we're just engineering this problem in perpetuity. And yeah. it's it's hard to see that changing anytime soon. Well, I think uh, I, I actually think that we can see it changing, or I do see it changing, but I don't see it changing on a state level. Like, I, I yeah. don't see, I think, you know, because this sort of politics of resentment and fear and division is is just, you know, blossoming absolutely everywhere. I don't see it happening on that level, but I actually do see it happening kind of in, in uh, on a community level and, and in kind of the civil society space, I actually do see it happening. I mean, I see it happening in England. I also know of uh, several sort of smaller initiatives in America where you see people who are actively trying to engage with uh, extremists and with the intention of ensuring that they know there is a way out. I mean, there's a group in, in America called Life After Hate. For example, uh, there's another group called Exit USA, which is actually a Scandinavian project, but it's, it does the same thing. It helps people out. Um, but very few people know that they exist, obviously. But similarly, you're, you're seeing people within communities, especially within the Muslim community on that side of the issue. You, you, you've seen a lot of people, a lot of women, uh, a lot of former extremists who are reaching out to young people, not just once they've been um, sort of enthralled in these uh, movements, but also people who seem susceptible to them. So people who are trying to interrupt it and intervene earlier. So it's on the preventative side, not just reacting once it's already gone too far. So we're seeing people actually engaging on all those sides. So I see a lot of hope in that sense. And, I, and they're producing remarkable, remarkable results. I mean, the ideal, of course, would be that these people would, you know, get enough resources and support and, and real structures so they could do this in a large way. Uh, but at least it is happening. 
while we wait for 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 our governments to pull their finger out. <laughs> One of the things that was so very clear to me because I watched your two films back to back in in one sitting and it's so obvious how complementary these extremisms are and in fact how reciprocal they are they depend on each other for their own survival yeah and that's so obvious when you watch these two films back to back i'm just curious how you think about that and if that's something that was apparent to you while you were making these films? They absolutely need each other. Um, and it became more sort of apparent to me once I finished making the White Right film. Because I, I could hear, you know, when I was speaking to the jihadis, uh, obviously a huge source of the, the friction for them is, you know, racism and experiences of racism and also kind of um, organized racism as well. Um and then, you know, speaking to the white supremacists and them, them talking about, you know, starting to blur lines between terrorists and Muslims and Muslims and terrorists and also all sort of one and the same thing. They're absolutely complementary. They need each other in terms of their recruitment. They use each other as very, very effective uh, boogeymen. And it works. It absolutely works, which is why they keep deploying uh, each other's movements up against each other. The, the other thing that I thought was um, a bit bizarre, actually is um, when I s was filming with some of the white supremacists, I would hear them, this I didn't really expect, I would hear them complimenting uh, jihadis in, a, in a, a kind of uh, begrudgingly. And what they would say is that, you know, what we really need is we need our men to be as committed as they are. We need our men to be as willing to die as they are. And then I also heard, you know, some of the guys, you know, talking about, you know, we, we, we need white Sharia. Apparently, that's a term, apparently. Basically, you know, where we need to keep our women down, you know, look at what they're doing. You know, we need that as well. And, you know, whatever, you know, so in, it, so it was interesting how some of them sort of romanticized the other side. I didn't see that on the jihadi side, I must say. But <laughs> uh, but but I did find that sort of fascinating and, and a bit sort of creepy that, that, that some of the white supremacists would speak about the jihadis in that way. But but of course, you know, they would never dream of joining forces or anything like that. They That's obviously, so fascinating. Isn't it? Because I was, I was going to ask if there was a kind of cross-pollination going on where they were learning and and mimicking each other, but apparently it's going one way. It is right? going one apparently way. Apparently, the, the jihadists yeah. are just better. At well, it. <laughs> well, they're, they're somehow more inspiring to to these guys. Well, I mean, it's they're they're further along, aren't yeah. they? I mean, they they've you know much you know they've honed their their online strategy and recruitment far more. Uh, but they yeah, don't, they don't have to manufacture a struggle in quite the way that that white right. supremacists who are the majority in one of the most comfortable countries in the world. Exactly. Have to do. They're not exactly besieged in the way that you know, the, ISIS in Syria is. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it is interesting that they that they kind of borrow tactics or want to borrow tactics and and want to sort of want that same sort of zeal and same passion and dedication from their guys, um, which is interesting, isn't it? But again, you know, both movements are also, I mean, they're hyper hyper masculine and and. Uh, and that I think, you know, there is also, I mean, that layer of this, I think, is is also important to mention is that, you know, I do believe that there is a bit of a crisis of masculinity going on, actually globally. And I think where, where there is a sense of shame and a sense of humiliation that some men feel, uh, where they feel like they are losing out uh, on opportunity in their lives to the other and to women. And I think 
what these movements, because they are hyper-masculine, they are aggressive and they are very violent, I think they end up providing a lot of certainty for people who are feeling very unsure about, you know, a very fast-changing world. And I think it also helps equalize that sense of shame and humiliation and also sense of sort of entitlement that, you know, men on both sides of the spectrum um, are used to sort of feeling entitled to and and are kind of losing out. I mean, you know, many of them feel like they're they're on the losing end now. And that's hard. And I can understand that. I mean, I actually have compassion for the fact that, you know, many of these guys, you know, do sincerely feel quite lost and don't know how to how to show up um, to their own lives. Um, and again, so I think these movements, you know, provide you with that kind of equalizer where you feel powerful, where you used to feel uh, powerless and and you know they make you feel seen where you felt invisible yeah it's such an important point and it it makes perfect sense right where you have a lot of people who are rejecting a world in which they don't fit yeah. or at least they think they don't fit yeah. and they're in their own ways outcast yeah and alienated and but you join this movement yeah. and suddenly you have a family suddenly you have a role Suddenly, you're someone. Exactly. And that, if you're someone who feels you know, lost or, or unattractive yeah. or unlovable, yeah. your whole life suddenly takes on a different gloss. Exactly. And like you, 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 you are a warrior exactly. in this grand struggle, imagined or not. And again, we were, I mean, this is sort of connects to what we were saying earlier, but I mean, it, it's, it's such an important piece of this puzzle, and there's just no way to make sense of it. Without thinking it through, and 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 this is exactly correct, and and this is what m makes me feel that this is so devastatingly sad as well, because I think this fundamentally says a lot more about us as a, us as a society failing these guys rather than what it says about the guys themselves. You know, it's it's I think as a society we have a responsibility to make sure that that people feel like they belong and feel like they have a place and feel like they have something that they can contribute and that they are valuable and that they do matter and that they are cared, that people do actually care about them. You know, I think none of that costs us anything, I don't think. Um, and and I, I always say this, but, I, you know, many of these guys are people who have given up on themselves and have given up on us. And I think it's really important that we don't we don't do that, that we don't end up giving up on them as well. I think I think we have to stick it out with people. I think we have to be there for people. You know, it's it's we talked about this before as well, but it's really easy to be kind and to um, you know, to just be there for people that you like and to support people that you like and agree with. I mean, you know, the true test of your your principles and your values really is when it comes to, are you going to afford all of that, you know, those rights and those opportunities and whatever to people that you dislike and people that you disagree with. And and the truth is, that's when it really matters. That's when your values and your principles matter. If you can, I mean, if, if I'm just nice to you and I can get along with you because we see the world, you know, pretty much the same, that's easy. I mean, that's, anyone can do that. They do that. Our behavior. I think is, a, you know, is, I guess what I'm trying to say is a part of how we break the cycle. As satisfying as it is, as great as it feels 
to be judgmental and self-righteous and to condemn them and all of this. It's, you know, it's, it's not productive. It doesn't actually get you anywhere other than you just feeling good about yourself for two minutes. But it doesn't, it didn't solve anything. Yeah. I mean, sometimes self-righteousness and success don't quite align. Yeah. And look, to be clear, this is not a pity party for no. extremists no, God, and no. racists. And, and no. I, I just, I really <laughs> want to be extremely clear on, on this point. There are true believers out there, many of them, people who are really, truly racist. Yeah people who are really, truly extremists who believe these ideologies yeah. fully. Yeah. And those people are not going to be reached or, or necessarily cajoled, and we shouldn't try. But there is a huge chunk yeah. of this population on both sides. The who, majority, the, I would say. The majority, yeah. perhaps, that yeah. don't fit that category yeah. and are vulnerable to being pulled away from it if we do what we need to do or if we provide the means to do that. And that's the conversation that I think is just not being had enough. Um, I mean, at the very least, let's yeah. not push them yeah. farther into the arms of, of extremism. You know, I mean, that's the least we can do is not add more fuel to that fire. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think that the echo chamber, chambers are just getting just louder and louder. And I think we all just... I don't know. I, I don't know what, why, what it's going to take for the rest of us to um, realize that we all have a part to play. And ultimately, you know, bombing something uh, into peace isn't enough. Arresting uh, our way out of some of this isn't enough. I mean, it's and, and just political uh, responses aren't going to be enough. I mean, it's, you know, human connection at the end of it is is really ultimately what um, what ends up really mattering to people, you know, because it's the lack of human connection that usually drives people to in this direction anyway. And, you know, and, and you, you know this as well. It's, you know, changing people's minds or really touching someone's heart. You know, you can, you can throw facts and arguments at people as much as you like and statistics at their faces as much as you like. But you really, if you're unable to touch someone's heart, you will never be able to change their mind. You know, and it's, I mean, just the, 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 you know, part of making this film, the fact that human connection is what really ended up being the, the, the lesson. And, and it's not the lesson for them. It's the lesson for me, I guess, is, is, you know, the most surprising, <laughs> you know, I, I walked into both of these films feeling so many strong feelings and so many bad feelings about these people. And, you know, brokenness is something that cannot be underestimated. And we all feel broken at some points in our lives. And we all know how how hard that is and how lonely that is. And I think, you know, some of these guys are no different than that. And, and, and all they really want or all some of them really want or need is just for someone to, to listen or someone to be there and someone to just not judge them all the time. Um, but I, but you know, I want to reiterate what you're saying. This is not a pity party for extremists. This is, you know, I, I think it's really important to state that engaging with people doesn't mean that you excuse their views. Doesn't mean that you agree with their views. Doesn't mean that you support or promote their views. I don't. I mean, everything that they stand for, I am 100% against. I mean, they, they, you know, on both sides, they want me dead. So obviously I don't support their views. 
Um, all I'm saying is it's important that we don't lose our own humanity in the process of confronting this um, because that's part of their goal. Part of their goal is to divide us. Part of their goal is to keep us afraid. Part of their goal is to keep us separate from each other. And part of their goal is for us to become disconnected from our humanity in the way that they've become to theirs. And me personally, I'm not willing to fall for that. This is the part where we asked the guests to offer three book recommendations for our audience. So without further ado. So um, I wanted to pick uh three books that I, I, I would imagine, you know, maybe your audience isn't aware of. And so the very first one um, is called Not About the Burqa. And it's uh, it's an anthology put together by a Muslim woman and her name is Maryam Khan. Um, and uh, the the reason she, she did the book is because of uh, some comments that the former prime minister of England made, which was basically insinuating that Muslim women are just traditionally submissive and therefore more prone to radicalization and all of this. So she's put together this, this book of various stories and perspectives and essays written by Muslim women to basically show that the very opposite is true. And, and to basically promote the, the wide variety of opinions and, and uh, incredible work that's being done by Muslim women. Um, so that, I think, is really interesting. Um, and then I was thinking about, because uh, we're now 30 years since the Salman Rushdie affair happened. Um, and uh, there's a book called uh, From Fatwa to Jihad by Kenan Malik. He's a writer uh, from England. And... Um, the reason I wanted to mention that is because I think because that speaks a little bit to some of the things that we've been talking about today as well. And, and um, unfortunately, I find his book to be really relevant still. Uh, what it really centers on is how dynamics within minority communities changed um, after the Rushdie affair, where it went from a solidarity, a politics of solidarity, basically, uh, across communities that was based on class and based on race that at that point got fragmented and shifted and splintered into uh, very, very narrow identities which were centered on uh, religion and which is what we've seen flourishing through the decades to where we are today. Um, so I thought that's potentially interesting if, if people would like to read that. And what was the last one I wanted to mention? Oh, um, Faith and Feminism in Pakistan, which is by uh, Afia Zia. And it's um, looking at how uh, women on the ground within a society like Pakistan uh, are operating uh, on making, uh, reducing violence and also making uh, some of the social problems that Pakistan faces, confronting that from a feminist perspective, which is something that, again, I think people in the West aren't particularly familiar with. The reason I'm mentioning these books and the reason it's so Muslim-centric and woman-centric is one of the things that I find quite um, frustrating when I'm speaking in America or in England or most Western countries is that there seems to be a real lack of understanding of the fact that there is a lot going on when it comes to countering extremism, when it comes to countering violence and, and, and geopolitical uh, ills within those regions that are being handled by women and activists on the ground. And just because you don't hear their stories, just because the only stories that you hear in the West and the names that you know are the names of the, the, the extremists and the terrorists, there is always somebody on the other end 
of that extremist and that terrorist. And it's usually a woman. It's usually a Muslim woman who is fighting back. So that's why I wanted to make make those recommendations. Dia Khan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Dia for being here. Thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we will talk to you on Thursday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.